From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Air Talk. Good morning. I'm Larry Mantle. Public health officials will be anxiously watching local crowds this weekend with trails, parks, and beaches open for active use. The big question is whether users will follow COVID-19 limitations. L.A. County is now mandating face coverings for everyone when leaving home. Minimum six-foot distancing also required. We'll talk with our infectious disease specialist about the latest on the coronavirus. And yesterday, Governor Newsom presented his May budget revision with state revenue dropping like a rock. The proposed budget calls for steep cuts in education and health care. We'll talk about how those sectors will try to adapt. It's Air Talk right after NPR News. Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to be with you today as I'm broadcasting from home as I typically do on Fridays. So nice to have you with us as we have much to talk about in this first hour. Coming up next hour, Film Week and our critics reviewing the return of Scooby-Doo in long form. It's Scoob, the Warner Brothers animated feature. We'll hear what our critics have to say about that, as well as Tom Hardy starring as Al Capone in the biopic Capone. It uh, takes us to the last year of Capone's life as he's suffering from dementia. And uh, groovy 70s uh, style film Mother's Little Helpers, written and directed by Kestrin Pantera, also on the schedule for Film Week this week. But we begin with the latest on COVID-19. As we do every day, we bring you a medical authority to talk about what we're learning about the coronavirus and also to further understand the public health measures in place to try and control its spread. With us today from UC Irvine School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine and Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention, Dr. Shruti Gohill. Dr. Gohill, it's good to have you with us again. Great to be here. Thanks, Larry. Uh, let's start, first of all, with the Los Angeles countywide mandate now from public health that all of us, when we leave our homes, uh, have a face covering when we go out. There are a couple of uh, very small exceptions to that, but it's, it's about as close to universal as a health mandate could be. What is the rationale for this when it seems like uh, if you're farther away uh, than six feet from someone, uh, it's unlikely that you would contract COVID-19? Yes, I think that's right, that social distancing is the critical aspect of all of this. um, And that if you could guarantee that you're going to stay away from somebody or you know that you're, you're not going to come in contact with them within several feet, um, then, then that's one thing. But the reality is that we live in a world uh, next to each other. We um, must commune sometimes when we go to the grocery store or when we do things like um, uh, going into public. So you can't guarantee things like that. And this is an extra measure to help uh, oh, decrease the source. bit. Um, can you just restate what you said, the last sentence, please? Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, the, it, this is really the key point is when you wear a mask, 
you are reducing your amount of any type of uh, droplet that could go into the air in your local surrounding. We don't live in bubbles. We can't um, always guarantee that we're going to have that bubble around us uh, spatially uh, at all times. And it's wise to just decrease the amount of uh, spread of any type of uh, droplet if you happen to be sick or if you you might get sick. And many of us think that it that the mask is there to protect us from other droplets. That may be, but really what masks do is to help. It's an act of um, sort of public, uh, um, um, shall we say, service to wear a mask. Uh, it, by covering up your own secretions, you are making sure that you don't spread your germs to other people around you. And maybe that, that also helps people understand that we can cut the source um, in the majority of people who could be out there in public and spreading germs. And let's talk a little bit about the droplets that you just mentioned, because I I think there's a lot of confusion around that. We have some of these simulations that show that droplets can hang in the air for an extended period of time, uh, that the droplets can um, potentially be um, communicate COVID-19. But it just seems like if 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 it was really that um, much of a threat, given how much, you know, so many people are out in the world these days, and it was hanging there for minutes at a time, wouldn't we see a much higher rate of spread if if those droplets were highly communicable? I, I really appreciate this particular question because it becomes so confusing because people end up becoming scared to even do anything, uh, thinking that this is hanging in the air at all times. No, it, absolutely it is true. When we talk, suppose you're not infected in any way, shape, or form. You just are a human living in this world, and you talk or you um, may cough because you, know, you have allergies or whatever. Um, you will generate droplets, you will um, have them out in the air for some period of time. They will quickly fall into the ground. They will quickly evaporate. Um, And if there happened to be a virus-laden droplet, uh, that also would go with the evaporation and, and sort of fall to the ground. Airborne diseases like measles and tuberculosis have a, the capability of infecting a lot of people within a closed environment. Um, this is worth mentioning that, the, that there's a, a metric that we use called the reproduction number. And that number uh, for coronavirus is somewhere around two and a half. In other words, if for any one person uh, to spread its illness to another person, um, it's about two people get sick for every one person, two to three people. Well, uh, for measles, the most infectious uh, virus known to man still, um, that reproduction number is 18. Tuberculosis, quite high as well in the teens. Varicella, which is chickenpox, is somewhere in an eight category. So orders of magnitude higher for diseases that are truly what we call in our field airborne. Airborne diseases are those that actually do hang in the air, ready to, to, um, to infect another person. Here we have a droplet disease. You are face-to-face with somebody who might be ill with coronavirus. They are singing, suppose, or they, are, uh, they have a sneeze or they cough in front of you, um, and you're in their orbit, their six-foot orbit. Could you get sick? Yeah, you could, you could get sick. But it's not going to hang in the air. Um, for measles, for example, if a person who is sick with measles leaves a room and somebody else enters that room one or two hours later, you could get sick from that air. So very, how very does, different. 
Uh, Dr. Gohill, how does duration of exposure factor into this then? You mentioned people in a room singing together. Early on with COVID-19, I believe there was a choir up in Washington State that had a high number of COVID-19 infections among choir members who had had a lengthy rehearsal together one evening. So does the amount of time you're in that space with a person who has COVID-19 factor in? Absolutely, it does. And and singing, remember, singing can be quite for uh, you know um, forceful uh, activity um, in terms of you know getting uh, secretions out up into the air in a potentially unventilated, poorly ventilated. I don't know how well ventilated the church could have been in Washington, but when you are in closer proximity, you are. Even though I know that they were practicing social distancing, um, you're in a closed environment, and there are a lot of people singing. And we don't even know about the environmental um, uh, sort of hygiene that was that was there. So I am not sure how everybody in that room got sick, and I. Uh, it's hard for me to believe that it was truly an airborne type of uh, spread for all of those people. Uh, you know, I think it was probably a mixture, but yeah, absolutely. I think that that's the kind of activity that if you are in there for hours, uh, you know, um, of course you will get sick. And I think uh, the common cold, influenza, very much could um, get transmitted. How many times have we gotten a cold and you didn't know <laughs> who you got it from, right? Yeah, boy, I, I wasn't out. Almost I never do I know where I got it from. <laughs> exactly. So it's quite similar with coronavirus. All right. Well, uh, let's take listener questions for Dr. Shruti Gohill of UC Irvine School of Medicine. She is an infection prevention specialist, epidemiologist, MD, and professor at the UC Irvine School of Medicine, 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-KPECC. You can also ask a question via Twitter at AirTalk, also on our AirTalk Facebook page, or post uh, on the AirTalk page at KP. PCC.org. Questions for Dr. Gohill. What do we think is going on with the spread in skilled nursing facilities and in assisted living facilities? Is it likely that the staff members are bringing it in and spreading it from patient to patient or resident to resident or, or something else going on? Um, absolutely. It is quite possible uh, that the likelihood is in the staff direction. Uh, We know our residents uh, in long-term care are often there because they are immobile and can't, uh, you know, can't do much for themselves. And um, so we um, would propose that, of course, like prisons, uh, that this that it's the staff members who are sick who come into that space and that's no different from any other uh, type of setting if you think about it if you are part of the community and you are exposed uh, then of course where you work you might expose other people and so that's a very well-known phenomenon that's the same thing that happens in hospitals or other places um, many of the cases that you see in the hospital are co-workers who get sick and then um, are with uh, close proximity within co- uh, with our co-workers themselves and then um, uh, make each other sick or make patients sick. But we have a number of protocols in place specifically to address this concern. And at nursing homes, um, I think uh, the, one of the biggest things that they need is daily um, aggressive symptom screening. Um, you know, every single day come in and get your temperature taken, get your symptoms screened, um, and even possibly uh, get tested if you're in the setting of a of an outbreak. So uh, that is one uh, area that I think is um, actively being beefed up uh, in counties around around the nation. 
We're talking with Dr. Shruti Gohill, UC Irvine School of Medicine. In various Asian countries, we're seeing a, a second wave of COVID-19 cases. Hong Kong, China, South Korea are seeing additional cases, presumably because people are getting out, mixing more than in the past. How do public health officials you, you know, deal with, with that um, because you would expect there would be some additional cases, but to determine whether that's kind of what you would expect just from more mixing after a lockdown versus a second wave of COVID-19, which could overwhelm hospitals. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, I couldn't say this more, more times, which would be testing and contact tracing. You know, it really is all about finding out who is sick and getting them to quarantine um, and getting all their contacts to understand that they could be at risk and getting them to quarantine. And, you know, in the time that we have had in Southern California, as opposed to, say, New York, to sort of adjust and sort of try to flatten the curve, there are a number of things that we hope that um, uh, people are able to do and maybe public health's messaging uh, could really, really push on, which would be um, how do we change our culture? You know, we're not a culture in which um, we're used to not going out or used to not going to bars. You know, in Asia, I think one of the one of the gentlemen who showed up was at a nightclub and um, and then managed to infect other people. And of course, we know South Korea, I think. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And so you know that that is a time when you're going to come into close contact with people or perhaps you've been drinking and you don't really realize that you might be sharing um, secretions with other people or, or, or what have you. So um, these are all all things that we can do to prevent the spread and um, and sort of come back to some semblance of a reopening. But boy, with cases sort of um, still uh, stubbornly staying uh, sort of plateauing or, you know, increasing, um, depending on which county you're looking at in, in California, uh, I would be really um, worried about reopening fully uh, without trying to get a strong culture change. And how are we masking? What's our etiquette for masking? Are you washing your hands before you touch your mask? Because then, um, you know, your mask may not be as helpful as um, as it would be uh, or should be, right? So how well are you cleaning? Uh, how, are you aware of your own symptoms? Are you keeping yourself out of other people's um, spaces if you know that you could be sick and getting attention for testing now that we have wide availability of testing? Are you getting attention and getting tested so that you can get that info? Well, and on the one hand, you've got what public health officials are are mandating. You've got what people are doing. On the other hand, I don't know about where you are in Orange County, but uh, the areas of L.A. County that, that I've been moving around, traffic is definitely getting heavier, heavier. You see more people out and about. You, I do see a high percentage of people with face coverings uh, and people attempting to keep distance generally. But there are just a lot more people out that I'm seeing anecdotally. And uh, so I guess it wouldn't be a surprise to me to see, to some degree, cases go up. I guess the question is, what's what's tolerable in that um, versus what we say is just, this is unacceptable. It's just, um, it, it's threatening to the healthcare system. 
Yeah, I think that everybody is looking very carefully at exactly what you said, Larry, which is, you know, sort of uh, how how quickly are we doubling uh, in the number of cases, number of deaths and number of people in the ICUs uh, that tells you a little bit about the morbidity, mortality. And I think taking it week by week is the is the best thing that we could possibly say to answer some of these questions. And absolutely, I think somebody should do a study, Larry, on the five freeway traffic patterns and, yeah. and re-engagement. Because would tell you a lot. Right. Would. <laughs> let's let's take a call this is from denise joining us uh, from crenshaw manor good to have you with us on air talk denise you wanted to ask about masks go right ahead well i understand they uh protect the people that we're with but i I'd, I'd like to know how it they don't protect me when i'm wearing them say if i also have face protection yeah oh. why is it that the covering doesn't protect the person wearing uh the covering you know, it does, you know, I, I may have misspoken there. It does protect you. It's just that the main mode of protection community-wide from a public health perspective is is to control the spread. But you as a person, you, of course, if somebody coughs, you know, in near you and you have 90% of your face covered or, you know, nose and mucous membranes covered, well, boy, that, that should help mitigate any type of entry into your mucous membranes. You know, what I worry about with mask use is the lack of hand hygiene attention. So if you are wearing a mask, that's great. But if you start touching things and don't clean your hands, and then when you take your mask off, touch your face with your mask, well, then now you've inoculated yourself if you happen to pick up a virus. Well, uh, that that is what I think my um, hesitation with masking uh, messaging uh, is. You know, wear the mask. I think it's really important, but it goes hand in hand with cleaning your hands because it, it's either either you stop the um, virus in its tracks from entering your respiratory system or you you also um, disrupt the ability for it to get on your hands and introduce it that way. So those are both legitimate, equal ways. And one of the things, and maybe you can dispel this if I have it wrong, but I had thought that the fabric masks, we're not talking about surgical or, or the, um, uh, the respirator masks, but with, with the fabric masks to, to keep it from spreading in the environment, it, that it, it, um, stops the droplets from being propelled as far as they would typically go. So it, it, it's kind of like a, a muffler on your mouth to keep it from going farther out. But for the person wearing the mask, if the, if the droplets are there, it doesn't work necessarily as well going the opposite direction to protect you if, if you encounter droplets and you're wearing a fabric cover. Am I wrong about that? Oh, you're absolutely right about that, Larry. It's it's not as effective at protecting you compared to um, compared to the person who's wearing it. Uh, this is true. All right, uh, Denise. Thank you so much for your call, Joanne in Irvine. You're on Air Talk with Dr. Shruti Gohill of UC Irvine. Hi, um, I, this is Joanne. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, please. Okay. Hi, Larry. Thank you so much for your program. I'm I'm a loyal follower. Thank you. Um, I just had a quick question about um, yesterday you had mentioned that your wife is doing all the grocery shopping for you. Yes. Yes. In fact, she went this morning. (laughs) Um, So that you could sort of stay in a bubble. And uh, my husband is asking me to go with him. He doesn't understand the rationale for that. uh, And so I'm wondering 
uh, is it safer for just one person to go grocery shopping versus two in the same family? All right, Dr. Gohill. Yeah, I think that's a, it's a good question. You know, it's this whole um, thing about spread of diseases, all about mitigating risk, whether, however small or big it may be. And so when you have two people out, you have two, you know, you have four pairs of hands. You have, um, you know, to both of you with mucous membranes, you have um, all of the other additional interactions that you, that each of you may individually have that could be uh, shared between each other. Um, and so it, of course, would cut your risk. The fewer people there are out, uh, that cuts risk. It shaves off just a little bit every time. And so there is some a wisdom to having one person go out as opposed to two, um, uh, right? I think that's the, the, the real just sort of basic way to answer that question. I don't know if that helps. Joanna, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Dennis in Woodland Hills, wondering about the best way to find legitimate testing sites. Dennis, my understanding is check with your local health department. So you're in Woodland Hills, the city of Los Angeles. I believe that they have a page up uh, where you can find out where the testing centers are and, and actually fill out information about getting yourself tested. Los Angeles County Health as well, Orange County Department of Health, or individual cities like Long Beach and Pasadena that have their own specific municipal health department. Dr. Shruti Gohill, thank you so much for joining us again. We really appreciate it, and please stay safe and have a good weekend. Great. You too. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. UC Irvine School of Medicine, Professor of Medicine and Associate Medical Director of Epidemiology and Infection Prevention, part of our daily series on the latest medically with COVID-19. Of course, we'll continue with that on Monday's Air Talk here on KPCC. But next, we shift to the California budget and the May budget revision of Governor Newsom, which he presented yesterday up to the legislature to work with that now and to get something ready to go by mid-June. We'll talk about what's in the governor's proposal in just one minute. I sure hope you're having a good Friday morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Thank you so much for joining us. And I also want to thank you. We have been getting daily just wonderful feedback from listeners like you uh, about what the program means to you, particularly during this time when we're all living such different lives under COVID-19 restrictions. And uh, for so many of, of Californians, tremendous economic stress. Um, I know for many of our listeners, uh, losing their jobs, being furloughed, um, just seeing their lives turned upside down. And if that is you, please know that we are thinking about you. We are with you. Your community cares about what you're experiencing and, and things will be better going forward. Uh, but I do want to thank you for your kind words of support. It's very meaningful to me as we as we all go through this together. Also want to remind you, as you are home more frequently, you can just ask your smart speaker at home to play KPCC whenever you want to listen to the live stream. We're right there just as we are when you're driving to and from work uh, during uh, typical days here in California. Well, speaking of economic distress, that's certainly true for the California 
budget, the May budget revision proposed yesterday by Governor Gavin Newsom reflects a 5.4 decrease in the overall budget, a 9.3% decrease from last year's general fund, and uh, revenue uh, projected to take a, a massive hit. Sales tax revenue projected to be down 27% because of what's happened in the retail environment. Personal income tax projections, uh, that's pro- uh, projected to be down 22% plus corporate tax revenues down a similar amount. So how is Governor Newsom proposing to deal with it? Joining us, H.D. Palmer, who is uh, with the uh, Department of Finance, State of California, Deputy Director of External Affairs. H.D., so good to have you with us again. Thanks, Laurie. Great to be back. Uh, obviously, very difficult times, and uh, let's just sort of do an overview of what the governors have to deal with. How are revenues even being projected at this point when when we're still trying to get our arms around uh, the extent of the economic devastation we're dealing with? Well, it's been a little bit trickier this year because of for probably the biggest example of that is the fact that we've had a delay in when people have to file their income taxes uh, from April the 15th to July the 15th. So that's put a, a new wrinkle or a new challenge in our forecasting uh, revenues. That said, the economic indicators that inform where we think revenues are going to go in the coming year, we've still been able to do that work. And and the result certainly isn't pretty. Uh, we've got a revenue drop compared to our January forecast of about $41 billion uh, over the span of roughly three fiscal years. And that is the, the big contributor, along with increased costs for caseload for safety net programs that happens during economic downturns like this that have uh, combined to to put us at a point of a $54.3 billion deficit that we now have to close in between now and the June 15th. And it is a remarkable change of fortunes from January when we had uh, a surplus projected of $5.6 billion. Uh, we had a budget before the legislature that was balanced not just next year, but in the three years after that. Uh, we've had a record level of reserves in the bank, $16 billion socked away already in the state's rainy day fund. So in just the span of four months, we've seen a swing of $60 billion, and that just is a testament to how fast and how broad the effects of this pandemic and the recession that it caused have had on, on our fiscal fortunes. Well, and, and a number of initiatives that the governor announced in January that have been sidelined, one uh, providing for undocumented immigrants who are older uh, to receive coverage under the Medi-Cal plan, uh, that $113 million program that is now sidelined, uh, $700 million homeless social services from January that had to be cut out, um, money taken from the rainy day fund for the state, um, preschool programs, uh, that being uh, cut back from what the governor wanted to implement. So, I mean, we've gone in just a few months from uh, all kinds of new initiatives to now looking at cutting what already exists. Let's talk about some of those specifically. Higher education, 10% cuts um, uh, looking for uh, state colleges and universities, um, and also uh, looking at a significant hit for community colleges in California. How are they going to be able to backfill those funds? Well, 
we've again these this is part of the 14 billion dollars in in reductions that the governor has put on the table uh but other th- above and beyond the fact that it underscores the severity of this recession it also underscores the critical nature of the federal government coming to help california out and other states as well not just california and local governments help deal with the the enormity of this recession and the fallout that it's created so the we can avoid the kind of reductions to core services of government that we're forced to look at because of this recession. And we are talking about reductions in public safety, talking about reductions in education of the kind you just mentioned, uh, in, in healthcare and healthcare services and social services, a whole host of areas. We, those aren't things that we think we should advocate from a, from a good policy perspective, but we have a requirement to balance a budget. We don't have a printing press. We can't create money. And, that is why the governor has, uh, for quite some time, been making the case that the next round of federal assistance needs to address the, the critical nature of partnering with the state and local governments to be able to weather this crisis and avoid those kind of reductions. One of the things that I know the governor takes issue with, and so do I in great respects, is that this is somehow or some way a bailout of the state, implying that there was bad management or malfeasance. Let, let's get a couple of things straight right off of the bat. This is not a crisis of California's creation. We have paid off debt. We have built record reserves. We have budgeted responsibly. And, and we've got the receipts to prove that. But now the fiscal fallout from this pandemic is our crisis to solve, not just the governors, but the legislators. And our ability to accomplish that with the least harm and the greatest chance for faster recovery will depend greatly on the federal government's financial commitment to help states recover. And we're seeing progress on that in the House of Representatives this week, as Speaker Pelosi has very ably worked to bring uh, the HEROES Act, as it is being called, uh, hopefully to a vote fairly soon that will provide substantial assistance of the kind that California is seeking to avoid these types of reductions in base services. But, of course, uh, that appears uh, DOA for the Senate. question is, what if any of that funding for the state and local jurisdictions would be part of a compromise um, act out that would be passed in the, in the Senate as well? I do want to ask you, though, H.D., about uh, something that's going to prove very controversial if the legislature concurs with the governor. That is using uh, three-quarters of a billion dollars in federal funds to buy by hotels where homeless Californians are being moved into. Now, there are a number of communities with these hotels and motels uh, who have already fought the idea of temporary housing of people there. Uh, and, and so now if you're looking at it being permanent uh, housing for, for homeless Californians, how are you going to deal with the response of, of communities that are concerned about that concentration of homeless residents? Well, that is a, the the homeless issue has has existed prior to this pandemic, but but the public health concerns that have been associated with the, the pandemic, and especially in, in the homeless community, have have brought this issue to the forefront, and the governor has moved expeditiously as part of a broad-based response to this pandemic, to be able to help move as many of these members of this vulnerable population into safe housing, into safe shelter, and into an area where they, we, their public health can be protected and we can further present, prevent rather uh, the, the spread of the virus. That also 
brings to the fore the issue of of housing for the for the homeless, which has been a perennial problem for the state. And that this is a proposal the governor thinks addresses addresses those issues. Now, where the legislature is going to wind up on that, uh, we will have to see in the coming weeks. The legislature begins its oversight hearings on the governor's plan next Monday. There's going to be a very robust discussion on on this and many other issues in the coming weeks, and and we will see. Uh, where where that discussion ends up uh, in the weeks running up to June the 15th, which is the constitutional deadline. We're talking with California Department of Finance Deputy Director for External Affairs, H.D. Palmer, with us on AirTalk. Also joining us, Vice Chair of the Assembly Budget Committee, Republican Jay Obernolte, who represents uh, high desert areas, San Bernardino County communities as well, like Hesperia, Victorville, Barstow, and other Mojave Desert locations. Mr. Obernolte, thank you for being with us again. Your response to how the governor is attempting to deal with this revenue crisis? Well, obviously, this is an unprecedented budget shortfall. And uh, throughout this crisis, we've asked Californians to make do with less themselves. And now with a projected $54 billion budget deficit, we must as well at the state level. Uh, There are some things that the governor is doing that I think are very responsible here. I uh, I appreciate uh, the way that he's being prudent in his use of our reserve funds. He's not assuming that this crisis is only going to last for one year from a budgetary standpoint. I think that that's very wise. Uh, But if you look at it overall, uh, you look at the budget that he's just proposed, he's reducing spending a little over 9% compared with last year's budget. Uh, And yet our state revenues are going to be down by about a third. So uh, that really shows the magnitude of the difference between the spending cuts that are required and the spending cuts that he is proposing. Uh, There are a couple of things that he's doing that I would characterize as blatant gimmicks, uh, and those are things that I don't support at all. Amongst those is he is proposing to uh, borrow over $10 billion from uh, encumbered funds for use in the general fund. And uh, those are funding funds that are going to have to be paid back in the future with interest. So to me, that's just kicking the can down the road. He's also got over $5 billion of deferrals from K-12 education and then another half a billion from deferrals for our community colleges. Uh, A deferral, uh, if your listeners aren't familiar, I mean, that's like if you have a car payment due on the 31st of December and you choose to pay it on the 1st of January the next year so you can say that that expense was in the following year. You know, that's really not an honest way of accounting for that expense. Those are monies that are just going to be accounted for in next year's budget as opposed to this year's. And those are not things that I think that we ought to rely on to balance this year's budget. All right. Uh, Also, we heard from H.D. Palmer, State Department of Finance, about uh, the importance from the governor's perspective uh, of getting significant federal dollars uh, to California. Uh, The HEROES Act, as uh, the Democratic majority of the House calls it, um, expected to pass today. Uh, Senate leaders say that's not going anywhere there. But what do you think is realistic for California to count on in some sort of a compromise in the way of state funds? Well, uh, obviously the governor has structured this proposal as a federal trigger in an effort to put pressure on Congress and the federal government to enact more funding in state aid. Uh, I I don't think that that is going to be successful. I I don't mean that uh, we, we can't expect any more federal aid. I'm talking about the political pressure part of it. Nancy Pelosi obviously is from California. She was already motivated to Uh, to pass more state aid. I I just don't see that structuring the budget this way is going to be successful in putting any more pressure on Congress. 
All right. What, but realistically, do you think that there is significant federal dollars that are likely to be approved coming to California? Well, I think that it is realistic to count on something. Uh, I think that in the short term, it's something that we're going to have to deal with without knowing how much federal aid we're going to get. Uh, as you pointed out earlier, we are constitutionally required to pass a balanced budget by the 15th of June. And uh, I think it's unlikely that we'll know prior to that date exactly what to expect from the federal government. So we have to pretend as if no money is coming from the federal government. And then uh, and then uh, when that money eventually does come, it'll be a pleasant surprise and, and instead of, you know, unfortunate disappointment. Assemblyman Obernolte, thank you for being with us today. We appreciate it. Of course. It's always an honor. Thank you, Jay Obernolte, Republican Assembly Member, Vice Chair of the Assembly Budget Committee, representing large swath of the High Desert, San Bernardino County, and the Mojave Desert. Coming up, we'll talk with the Chair of the California Senate Budget Committee, Holly Mitchell. The Democrat will join us and talk about uh, what she thinks uh, in Governor Newsom's budget, what she likes, what she doesn't. We'll also talk with longtime California political observer Dan Walters of CalMatters and John Kupal of the Howard Jarvis. Uh, Taxpayer Association. You're listening to Air Talk on 89.3 KPCC. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. So good to have you with us today on Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle coming your way from my house as I typically do on Fridays. Coming up, it's Film Week. Our critics reviewing uh, the new animated film, which returns Scooby-Doo to feature-length Scoob. We'll also hear about the biopic Capone, starring Tom Hardy as Al Capone during the last year of the gangster's life, and the comedic drama Mother's Little Helpers, those and more films coming up this week on Film Week. Joining us now is uh, State Senator Holly Mitchell, who chairs the State Senate's Budget Committee. Her district includes a large portion of Southwest Los Angeles, Culver City, and South L.A. Senator Mitchell, good to have you with us again. Thank you, Larry. I appreciate being invited. So what's your um, your reaction to the governor's proposal here? Do you think it it's likely to end up passed in similar form by the legislature? Well, first of all, Larry, I think it's, un- it's important that we put it all in context. We are experiencing an unprecedented public health pandemic, which has catapulted us into a deep recession. That's the context in which the governor developed his budget um, that was released yesterday, and that's the context in which the legislature will have to um, review it and make a decision by June 15th. All right. Um, what disturbs you the most about the cuts that are contemplated here? Well, um, I think what disturbs me the most is really the overall experience we're all having. You know, the LAO talked about the severity of the recession and its impact on all of us will depend not only on the depth of the downturn, but also on how long this crisis lasts. And so I think the budget has to reflect a balance. We have to make sure that we're not cutting deep into programs that are helping people survive this public health economic pandemic. We can't cut deeply into our public health and our social service delivery system that is helping keep people afloat. And so um, I think the fact that the governor proposed cuts that include a trigger, and he was abundantly clear yesterday that trigger doesn't have to be activated if the federal government steps in to provide support to states 
and municipalities all over this country. The president of the Federal Reserve Bank even yesterday said that that was the appropriate thing for Congress to do, and so I'm hoping that they will. Senator Mitchell, do you have any concerns about what uh, Assemblyman Obernolte called gimmicks in the budget uh, about borrowing against encumbered funds, in other words, funds that were designed for another purpose to borrow against that, and also about the $5 billion in deferrals he mentioned in K-12 education? Uh, Of course, we all have a concern when it comes to deferrals with regard to education, but I have to disagree with my colleague, and I'm sure your listeners um, understand the concept of borrowing. I wouldn't call that a gimmick. We have any number of of traditional budgeting tools that are used by the private sector and governments throughout the course of time. And so fund shifts, special fund borrowing, deferrals, targeted tight belting, those are all strategies um, the, the Senate is looking at using because we want to make sure that this budget is responsible and we don't want to become a part of the problem. We're going to aim to avoid uh, any major ongoing program cuts um, or taxes to the middle class to help that would you know, increase the burden and the economic harm people are experiencing. But I believe your listeners understand the difference between borrowing and a gimmick. Um, in past recessions, we have engaged in all of these activities, and we were able to pay them back with interest. And so I think they are appropriate budgeting strategies, particularly when our ultimate goal is to cause no harm. All right, Senator Mitchell, we appreciate your being with us again on Air Talk. Thank you so much. Yes, stay safe and have a good weekend. Thank you. To you. Senator Holly Mitchell chairs the California Senate's Budget Committee and represents a portion of Southwest, South Los Angeles, and Culver City. With us now from Cal Matters, longtime California political observer and columnist Dan Walters. Dan, thanks very much. Uh, your thoughts about what the governor is proposing here? Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting budget in a lot of ways, and and one of the difficulties I think is actually gauging the the true extent of the state's budget problem. Uh, the governor's number, fifty four billion or so, is a lot different, for example, than the number coming out of the legislative analyst's office because they approach the thing differently, uh, and and the public doesn't get into the weeds of why they're different so much as they see the big number and react to the big number. But if you, if you, the legislative analyst, which is the advisor of the legislature, says the the true deficit may be like more like eighteen billion dollar under a a fairly rapid recovery of the economy, or maybe only thirty one billion dollars if the economy, if the recession continues on uh, for some length of time. And it's the way they calculate the thing. One of the things the governor does is basically counts his Dece- his January budget as the baseline. That's where you start from to calculate the deficit instead of starting with, let's say, the current year's budget or something like that. And so these numbers kick around, but it's actually, uh, it, it has a, a long-term effect. So why, when I, add, when I ask, does the governor want to have a big deficit as opposed to a smaller deficit? And the answer is, is what, your, what your guests have been talking about. A lot of this is aimed at Washington, D.C., and the bigger the the deficit problem is pictured as being in California, it has some, perhaps some impact on the effort to get uh, the Congress to pony up uh, $3 trillion in relief, including about a billion dollars for states and local governments, of which California state and local government would get about 
probably $100 billion, split roughly between the state and local governments. So it's a big stake here. And if you can help it uh, move along by saying, God, look at the size, the humongous size of this problem, it's more impressive than if you say, well, really, it's not quite that big if you, if you look at it another way. So this is a very this is a very tricky business. A lot of this budget is is, is really aimed at Washington D.C. rather than at Californians or at uh, an, uh, some ultimate solution to the problem. What does that mean then, Dan? If the legislature in mid June passes a budget somewhat similar to what the governor's revision looks like, and and then. You know, you you um, get some federal dollars that were unexpected, or uh, things end up much worse. They can come back and and revise on the fly. Oh, absolutely! This, this budget goes in stages. The governor proposes a budget in January, and obviously, the May revise, as we call that around the Capitol, rather than May revision. But the May revise is a is another part of the process. And then the next part of the process is the legislature passes a budget by June 15th, because if they don't pass a budget by June 15th, they lose their salaries. So that's an important thing, too. And then after that, you can revise it as much as you want, as often as you want, forever. In fact, there's part of the governor's budget package is to revise the budget that was passed last June 15th, and also had been revised several times since then, so this budget is not a single product. The budget is basically a process. And the June 15th thing is just another step in the process. So if something comes along later, the uh, state revenue figures look better or they look worse or the feds give us some money or they don't give us some money, back and forth, all the things that might transpire for another year thereafter are all subject to, to changing the budget. It's a constant series of changes. It's been going on for a long time that the budget is not a single fixed document. It is simply a, a process, a, a thing that's constantly being revised as we move along. Now, the revisions are going to be more dramatic this year than ever before, but we should not say that June 15th, whatever the okay. does, is cast in stone. It is absolutely... Hey, Dan, real quickly before I let you go, uh, contemplated here a 10% pay cut for state employees. That's subject to collective bargaining. Um, at what what point does that bargaining begin, essentially, right away? It begins right away, but that's not that also is not engraved in stone. What the governor wants is something from the state employees. It could, okay. it could be a 10% salary cut. It could be furloughs. It could be partial furloughs. It could be a lot of different things. So it's an opening offer, essentially, uh, to negotiation. Dan, thanks very much. I appreciate it. Have a very good weekend. Always a pleasure. Cal Matters, longtime political observer and columnist Dan Walters joining us. Coming up, we'll talk with John Kupal, Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. H.C. Palmer is still with us from the State Department of Finance. You're listening to Where Talk on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app.
Film Week coming up in about seven minutes here on KPECC. Our critics have a lot of new films that are streaming uh, to be able to talk about or available on video on demand. Also want to mention that Governor Newsom's daily news conferences uh, yesterday with his marathon uh, unveiling of the May budget revision uh, brings to an end his daily news conferences. He'll be doing them uh, on a less regular basis, probably weekly, uh, coming up uh, on COVID-19. So today it'll be fresh air at noon. No news conference from Governor Newsom. Uh, We continue talking, though, about his May budget revision with John Kupal, the president of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. John, it's good to have you with us again. I specifically wanted to ask you about the tax increases proposed here, about four and a half billion dollars in increases, including some tax deductions on businesses being eliminated. They concern you? Uh, yeah, any tax increase concerns us because it uh, translates into a drag in the economy. But we are pleased that there's no uh, broad-based tax increases. And, and this is, in the context of this crisis, a relatively uh, minor uh, revenue enhancement. Uh, he also had as a second revenue enhancement the tax on vaping. Again, not something that we like. It, it's it's a tax that uh, is going to fall on uh, folks who are more likely to be on fixed incomes, and and certainly not a tax on the wealthy. Uh, but in the in the grand scheme of things, these were not uh, significant revenue enhancements, and the net operating loss can be recovered at some later point in time for those businesses that have to defer that deduction. So um, on the revenue side, on the tax increase side, we're not that disappointed. I I think that what's driving that, of course, is I think there's a recognition by everybody that California is simply a high-tax environment with the highest income tax rate in America, highest state sales tax rate in America, and highest gas tax. I think, you know, you don't have to be a Republican or Democrat to realize that there's already a saturation level on our on our taxes. Of, of course, people always point out that with Proposition 13 that that uh, lowers individual property tax burdens in California as a counterweight to the high taxes in those other categories that you mentioned. How does this uh, economic crisis factor into efforts to do a split role and to do away with Prop 13 for commercial properties? Yeah, well, first of all, I'd like to push back a little bit on your uh, presumption on Prop 13 resulting in lower property taxes. Even with Prop 13, California ranks 17th out of 50 states in per capita property tax collection. So we are still a high property tax state, notwithstanding Proposition 13. Because of high values of property, and that's a good point you make, yes. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, a low rate, but because values are high, we end up yeah. paying uh, significantly higher uh, property tax than the average uh, property owner in America. Uh, split role, I, I think what happened in March with a rejection of a uh, very significant percentage of local tax measures, as well as for the first time in more, in, since the 80s, a rejection of a statewide school bond, which, which didn't even result in a tax increase. That's just borrowing. Uh, in hindsight, I think it's a good thing that the voters rejected it uh, because of the crisis. But that reflects a hesitancy on the part of voters to to uh, look at any revenue uh, increases. And okay. the polling for split role is pretty bad. I'm not, I think we've got a hell of a fight on our hand, uh, hands, but I, I, I just don't see 
the average voter uh, looking at the split role proposal as something they want to adopt because even if they're not involved in commercial property, it's very easy to make the connection that it will increase the cost of goods and services in California. John Kupal, good to have you with us. Thanks so much. Howard Jarvis, Taxpayer Association President. Let me close with H.T. Palmer, California Department of uh, Finance. Um, It doesn't sound like there's tremendous pushback to what the governor is proposing here. So what's what's the next step, H.D.? Well, I think what you've heard here uh, and all of us discussing is there are no good choices in a a crisis of this magnitude. the next step is actually in about an hour from now. The governor is going to be meeting with the legislative leaders to kind of discuss how we go forward and navigate um, this $54 billion shortfall by June the 15th. Uh, we've got a lot of work to do, a lot of difficult decisions, but we recognize that we have to meet that deadline and we don't depend on the federal dollars that we are seeking. This isn't a question of we're going to bank. We hope we're going to bank and we're going to assume it. We don't assume it. We can't. So we've got those triggered cuts that are on the table. And if the federal government does not come forward with those, then those go into effect. So we're controlling our own fate in that respect. But we think and we believe that the federal government should step up and assist California and other states to deal with this unprecedented crisis. H.D., thank you so much. Have a good weekend. We appreciate your being with us. And, of course, there is grave concern that's been expressed from um, public education uh, in this whole area of cuts. And on Monday, we'll talk with some of the state stakeholders uh, in that whole area of public ed. Have a great weekend. From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle. As we take you back to 1939's The Wizard of Oz, we'll tell you about what's happening with new films this week. Our critics review the animated Scoob. It's directed by Tony Cervone and brings back the characters from Scooby-Doo. Capone takes us to the final year in the life of the gangster Al Capone. Tom Hardy stars in the biopic. The 70s set uh, comedy drama uh, Mother's Little Helpers stars Melanie Hutzel and is written and directed by the co-star of the film Kestrin Pantera. And we'll also hear about the socially conscious horror film Body Cam starring the singer Mary J. Blige. All coming up on Film Week. Welcome to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC and the Film Week app. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us as we talk about the new movies that are out on streaming services and video on demand with this week's critics who are Wade Major of Synagogues.com, Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co-host of the podcast Breakfast All Day, and Charles Solomon of Animation Scoop and Animation Magazine. Speaking of animation, we begin with Scoob. Scooby-Doo and the gang are back. The film directed 
directed by Tony uh, Cerveny. Uh, the film is written by Matt Lieberman, Adam uh, Stiekel, uh, and uh, Jack Donaldson, Derek Elliott, also the credited screenwriters. Charles, what did you think of Scoob? Well, this is one of those crazy quilt films that are stitched together out of pieces of other things. And you sit there and think, okay, that's Big Hero 6. That's Iron Giant. That looks like Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs 2. That's this. I mean, for a lot of um, Gen Xers, Scooby-Doo is really an iconic show. It's got all those wonderful you know, childhood memories but I don't understand why, if you want to do a remake of it, you don't do a remake of it. Scooby-Doo was always about the gang solving mysteries, or more properly, mystery, because it was always, you mean Mr. Mantle, the bank president, was really the phantom all along? <laughs> Yoikes! And in this case, they're trying to, they're on this enormous adventure, they're trying to stop um, Dick Dastardly from Wacky Races, from releasing Cerebrus, the, the evil dog of you know, the underworld and stealing treasure. And it's not what you watch Scooby-Doo for. And another part of the problem is in recent years, we've had two other characters who were a lot like Shaggy, who with Scooby, you know, was the main focus, uh, who are much better animated and better written. And that was Fred the Fanboy in Big Hero 6. And Jonathan, the hysterical uh, slacker dude nephew, in the Hotel Transylvania movies, and they kind of out shaggy shaggy. And then for some reason, they have Scooby-Doo talking, not just mangling an occasional word, you know, yoikes, but he's giving whole lines of dialogue, and it it just doesn't work, and I don't understand why he's doing it. Um, it so sounds like just... it's potentially selling out the series. Yeah, which was itself not that great a piece of artistry to begin with, although this is full of little Easter eggs about the original series, like they go to the Takamoto Bowling Alley, which is a little tip of the hat to Iwo Takamoto, who designed the characters, or they refer to Slag Hoople at some point, which is Wilma Flintstone's maiden name. So it's a lot of <laughs> Hanna-Barbera in-jokes, but not much, and you know, I went to college and got three degrees so I could recognize Wilma Flintstone's maiden name. <laughs> I love it. So, Christy, what do you think of Scoob? It is a very weird combination of stuff because it takes place in the present day, but then it has that groovy flower power vibe. You know, Fred still drives a mystery machine and they all wear the same kind of clothes, um, but it takes place now. In the beginning, when it is the origin story of how Scooby and Shaggy meet and how the five of them get together and they create Mystery Incorporated, when they're little kids, it's actually really sweet. The moment that Scooby and Shaggy meet on the beach in the very beginning is really charming and kind of heartwarming because they're both kind of lonely and scared and they find each other and it's really lovely. Um, and how, you know, the, the cuteness of them meeting and, and promising one another, okay, we're never going to go inside of a dark, creepy house again, right? I mean, there, there's some funny stuff in the beginning. And then it becomes this massive and convoluted story, as Charles said, about stopping Cerberus from coming out of the underworld. And they're also trying to cram in all kinds of pop culture references. There's a really weird through line involving one particular celebrity cameo that's strange and very strained. And like the, you know, the music, it's like outcast, bombs over Baghdad. It's, it's a weird mishmash of trying to appeal to adults and kids 
at the same time. My 10-year-old son is a pretty big Scooby-Doo fan. He's played the Scooby-Doo video game even that is shaped like the, the joystick is shaped like the van. And he turned to me like halfway through this movie and he goes, honestly, I liked it better when they were kids. Because once they're teenagers, it just gets frantic and noisy. And some of the laziest writing toward the end, how they get out of the jam that they're in, is so lazy and so quick and easy. It was head spinning. So, yeah, this is not good. We're talking about the animated film Scoob with Scooby-Doo. Wade? I concur 100% with everything that uh, Christy and Charles have already said. Uh, I, it, I, I like the prologue with them as kids. I really like the credit sequence, which is basically a 3D animated, CGI animated uh, replica of what was the credit sequence, the, the title sequence on, of the original cartoon. So that was fun to see them parrot that. And then it just goes straight downhill. The problem here, I think, is that, that there's this obsession with intellectual property, IP. Everything has to be based on IP. And I think Warner Media in the AT&T era uh, looks at this library of Hanna-Barbera content and says, how can we explode this into our own Hanna-Barbera universe? How can we make this into a kind of a mar- mini Marvel universe? And so you get Blue Falcon and Dynamite and, and, and uh, Dick Dastardly and Muttley, and they're really shoehorning everything into this to try to, to jumpstart a new explosion of Hanna-Barbera-themed stuff. And I don't think it's going to work because, as has been noted, it's a Gen X phenomenon, and they're trying to take that Gen X phenomenon and repackage it for Gen Y and, you know, the going forward. And it just isn't going to work because it doesn't have the same resonance. We're talking about Scoob, the animated film directed by Tony Cervani. Uh, the film is available on just about every on-demand platform you can imagine. It's rated PG. Capone gives us the last year of Al Capone's life. Tom Hardy stars as the gangster. Linda Cardellini and Jack Loden co-star. Josh Trank is the writer-director. Christy. Oh, my goodness. Is this just a baffling misfire? This is just terrible, but exquisitely so, and it must be seen. (laughs) Um, I don't really know what Tom Hardy is doing here. You know, I mean, he's one of the greatest actors working today, and he is very well known for digging deep and creating these emotionally and physically transformative performances. And he does that here, but the choices he makes, particularly with the voice he's doing, are really distracting and quite often unintentionally hilarious. Um, This follows the last year of Al Capone's life as he is rattling around his mansion in Florida and suffering from dementia. Um, And you don't know what is imaginary, what is a memory, what is a dream, what actually happened that he's just remembering differently. And uh, it just... It feels like a slug. And I, I appreciate that Josh Trank is trying to get into his mind and show in a, a respectful way what dementia can do, what can happen to the mind, the deterioration that's going on. But it's also crammed full of poop jokes with really noisy sound design. And the, the sight of Tom Hardy shuffling around this tacky Florida estate with a gun in diapers pooping all over himself is just bizarre. Um, Linda Cardellini as his wife is doing some lovely work, but it's like she's in a totally different film. I mean, she's acting opposite this Tasmanian devil whirlwind of a performance. She's just trying to bring emotional groundedness to it. And that's really hard. Um, 
Having said that, it's got to be seen. It's just so strange. Capone, Wade. It is so watchably unwatchable. It is magnificent. <laughs> Everything that Christie said and more. You know, I keep, I, I, these come around every so often, and it's really true. When great actors make bad movies, they give the best terrible performances. Tom Hardy is such a good actor that when you stick him in a part that's this bad, this badly written, and a movie that's this bad, he just takes it to the nth degree. And I couldn't help but think that Al Pacino was watching this in awe, just thinking, even my worst performance has never been this good. It is, it is really, truly a spectacular train wreck to behold. I, it is, I'm, I'm going to say it's almost Cats-level astonishing. Uh, <laughs> it really does need to be seen to be believed. And in terms of her performance, are we like Faye Dunaway in Mommy Dearest? Or? Yes, exactly. Okay. It's right in that ballpark, right in that pocket. Great actor with uh, a performance that is one of their most memorable, not in uh, an intentional way. Capone is on multiple video-on-demand platforms, Lemley's Virtual Cinema as well. It's rated R. Mother's Little Helpers, a comedic drama starring Melanie Hutzel and Kestrin Pantera. Pantera is also the writer-director of the film. Wait. Really solid little indie. The, the premise is something that's fairly familiar. Uh, bring a bunch of estranged siblings back to the, uh, the, the foot of a, a dying parent's bed and sort of let all of the family dynamics play out, all of the issues that have been simmering. Usually it's a dying father that this is all centered around. In this case, it's a dying mother uh, who has a bit of a, a flower child background as well and who carries a lot of the uh, the blame to bear for all of the uh, the issues that are floating around between the siblings, but they all come back together. And what I liked about this was that despite the fact that we've seen this premise so much, and I've seen it in like probably three or four different languages over the past two years, but uh, he, what they do, they do a very good job of giving you characters that are fresh. So even if the, the scenario is familiar, the characters are fresh, the relationships and the issues between them are fresh, and the acting is really, really good. And everything that they, they try to sell you on is very, very credible, and it, and it winds up be, being incredibly engaging and honest, and you start to feel as if you know this family and you, you know exactly where they came from. And even at that point, you have no idea where it's going. It takes some really interesting twists and turns. Mm, Christy, we're talking about Mother's Little Helpers. I like this very much, too. And as, as Wade said, this is a very familiar kind of genre, but it has surprises over and over again. Um, there is a real emotional authenticity going on here. And Kestrin Pantera um, came up with a story based on some experiences in her own life. And all of the other actors playing the siblings contributed to the script. And so each character feels very well defined and very distinct. It's not like it's just the one main sibling and everyone's kind of a blob of angst. Like each actor or actress really gets a moment to to shine and to show some complexity to their roles. I I like Melanie Hutzel. She's not quite old enough to be playing the mother of all of these other people. And that's a little distracting the whole way through. But I like the way this is shot. There's sort of a gauzy 
nostalgic look to some of the flashbacks from when the siblings were children that gives it a, a vivid sense of place and of the, the 70s kind of throwback that they're aiming for here. So yeah, it's a really nice little indie. Mother's Little Helpers is unrated. You can see it on multiple video on demand platforms like Amazon Prime Video, Google Play, and YouTube. Uh, the documentary, The Ballad of Ezequiel Hernandez, is narrated by Tommy Lee Jones, Kieran Fitzgerald, the director. Wade? This is quite good. Uh, this was originally on television in 2008, hasn't been on VOD before. It, uh, it's a story in 1997 um, of a really tragic killing of uh, this high school student uh, down near the U.S.-Mexico border, uh, Ezequiel Hernandez, who was just out shooting his 22 and was apparently completely unaware of the fact that the bushes and the shrubs that he was shooting near were camouflaged U.S. Marines who had been deployed there to fight drug trafficking on the border. And it's a very, very porous border. Uh, you know, there are border towns on either side, so it's, it's an area where the border has, sort of has a history of being very loose. And um, the, the events surrounding this and what happened to the Marines thereafter is really an unbelievable tragedy. You, uh, you, you get it from all sides. The Marines themselves are interviewed. The family of Ezekiel Hernandez is interviewed. Uh, a historian from his town is interviewed. So you get a very complete picture. No voice is left out. Uh, it takes a slight propaganda drip at the end, which I thought was unfortunate, but it doesn't necessarily undermine or invalidate the rest of the film. It's a really superbly made documentary and, an, and a story that, uh, that, that rips at your heart. The Ballad of Ezekiel Hernandez is available on iTunes Video On Demand and Amazon Prime Video, unrated, as Wade mentioned. Premiered on television 12 years ago, but it's first time available on Video On Demand. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPECC and the KPECC app. We also remind you, anytime you want to listen to Film Week, you can tell your uh, smart speaker to play KPECC Film Week of Available as a podcast, also wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And our Film Week critics also have put together uh, curated lists of their personal favorite films and TV shows available for binge watching for streaming online. You can find the recommendations uh, at laist.com. I sure hope you're having a terrific day. We're talking about what's available to stream or to watch on demand in your own home. A little bit later, we've got some critics' picks for you. And we also are going to talk about what's going on in the production front with film and television programs. I'm joined this week by critics Charles Solomon, Christy Lemire, and Wade Major. Next is the Canadian drama Castle in the Ground. It's written and directed by Joey Klein, stars Alex Wolfe, Imogene Poots, and Tom Cullen. Christy? I liked this. It is unrelentingly bleak, but it's very well acted. Alex Wolfe stars as a 19-year-old who is caring for his terminally ill mother, played by Nev Campbell. Um, once she dies, and this happens early on, um, he becomes friends with the woman who lives across the hall from him in their kind of run-down working-class apartment building, played by Imogen Poots. And she is an opioid addict. And in his grief 
and in his desire to escape and just be in denial of you know his entire life being upended, he becomes friends with her and gets sucked into her world. And the movie does not glamorize drug use, but it makes it really vivid and really understandable as to the allure of this young woman. She's very smart and she's exciting and dangerous. And she also kind of provides a strong female figure in his life when the one that he's had for so long has, is now gone. And it's how he, you know, gets sucked into her world and her troubles and it gets increasingly dark. Um, it is, uh, it's, it's surprisingly emotional sometimes too. And it's very well acted, but um, it's not for everyone because it's sort of, it's got kind of a one note tone there of just despair and, and anxiety. We're talking about the drama Castle in the Ground. The film is unrated and it's available on several on-demand platforms. The action thriller Blood and Money stars Tom Berenger, uh, Kristen uh, Hager and Paul Ben Victor, John Barr, makes his feature writing and directing debut with Blood and Money. Wade. Yeah, this is one of those wilderness noirs. It's a it's a pretty decent thriller, and it's a nice little showy part, uh, late career showy part for Tom Berenger. Takes place in the wild, wooded northern part of Maine, which is a kind of a, a lawless frontier of sorts, and. Uh, Tom Berenger plays a veteran who's come has a bit of a broken life. He you know lives in a in a camper, and uh, we don't really quite know what scarred him or how he got where he is. But he's going out and he's buck hunting, and uh, in the process of buck hunting, he winds up coming face to face with a group of bank robbers, violent, murderous bank robbers, who are trying to make their way to Canada through this wilderness, and it becomes a one man against the uh, the bad guys thing. A little bit of a high noon. Scenario, few other genre films that it borrows from, but on balance, it's very competently made. And uh, the fact that Berenger is playing an older guy, a vet who's not, you know, he's not Arnold Schwarzenegger, he's not even Liam Neeson. He's a guy who really has to struggle every step of the way to make any kind of gains on these guys. So it has a it has a gritty credibility to it that makes it um, better than the average film in this genre. I would say we're talking about Blood and Money, starring Tom Berenger. The film's unrated. You can see it on iTunes, Apple TV, and Fandango Now. The documentary Up From the Streets gives us a look at New Orleans through its music. Michael Murphy, the director, Charles. Well, I think this is about the third documentary on New Orleans and jazz we've had in recent years, and in many ways I think it's the best. Uh, It's much more thorough and much more careful in its explanations. For instance, any number of films will tell you, oh, there are you know, African and Cuban influences on jazz. Here they have someone talk about, okay, in New Orleans, you have this three-part rhythm that's counted this way. In Cuba, it's counted slightly differently, but it's still the same time. And then they explain that the French and Spanish brought slaves from different parts of Africa to New Orleans, where they brought their own traditions of percussion and drumming. And so this thoroughness really gives you a grounding and helps you understand how it's being built. And they have an extraordinary number of interviews with everyone from Winton and Branford Marsalis to Harry Connick Jr. and Keith Richards and Sting, all talking about how this uh, music has influenced them. It's very upbeat, 
uh, very interesting. And, um, you know, I learned a lot from it. Jazz is not a genre I know or a music form I know particularly well, but I found this very interesting and very entertaining, if a little bit long. Sounds good. Up from the streets, uh, music documentaries unrated. Michael Murphy, the director, and it's available to see on Lemley's virtual cinema platform. Uh, The sci-fi drama Proximity stars uh, Ryan Masson and Heidi Kwan. It's uh, directed by Eric Demusi, who is also the co-screenwriter. Wade. Yeah, Eric Demusi is a former visual effects guy. This is his uh, writing and directing debut. And uh, as as silly and ridiculous as this is, if you're in the mood for a good old-fashioned flying saucer alien abduction movie, this will definitely scratch the itch. But bear in mind, those movies have never been good. They're not supposed to be good. The silliness and the outlandishness of them is the whole point. This takes itself a little too seriously at times, but it's basically about a JPL scientist who uh, is witness to a what looks like a crashed flying saucer and uh, winds up being abducted by it, blacks out, doesn't have any recollection of it, but he has what seem to be powers in in the wake of it. And next thing you know, government agents are chasing him and he's trying to track down the aliens and, and connect with other people who may have been abducted. And it, it makes absolutely no sense, but it's riveting at the same time. You just, uh, once it starts, you can't take your eyes off of it. It's a, it's a pretty solid, straightforward chase scenario. And as much as you tell yourself that it's dumb and there's no reason to watch it, it keeps its grip on you very effectively. Proximity, the sci-fi drama, is unrated. It's available on multiple on-demand platforms. Body Cam, a drama starring Mary J. Blige and Nat Wolf, the film directed by uh, Malik Vital. It's rated R. Christy. Yes, earlier we talked about Alex Wolf in Castle on the Ground. Here is his older brother, Nat. So this is... Kind of a strange and ambitious genre mashup here. It's a Black Lives Matter horror movie and a very gory one at that, but also a surprisingly well-acted one. And a lot of that has to do with Mary J. Blige just showing up and being Mary J. Blige. And she's just always awesome. It has this tremendous presence about her. She plays a police officer who is recently back from uh, taking a leave for uh, something we, we learn about eventually as the film goes on. And there's a horrific encounter that a fellow officer has that shows up on his body cam that only she can see. For some reason, everybody else looks at this video and it seems to have been scratched somehow or erased or glitched, but she sees it and she sees what really happens. And then over and over again, cops are getting targeted and she's the only one who can see the supernatural force that is causing these horrific attacks against the police department. And it is moody and suspenseful and kind of strange and really, really gory. So if you're not good with extreme blood and gore, you're going to have a problem here, especially with teeth. If you have a problem with teeth, <laughs> you, you might have difficulty watching this. But I was surprised at how much I liked it and how much I, I admired the ambition of it. Wait, what did you think of Body Cam? Yeah, this is uh, these are the fruits of uh, the next generation after Jordan Peele. You know, Jordan Peele did something with Get Out that really kind of lit a fuse, which is he said, you can take social issues and horror 
and you can you can put the two together in a very artful way. Now George Romero did it, but he didn't do it terribly artfully. Um, Jordan Peele said you can make artistic A quality uh, horror films that have a real social commentary to them, and that's exactly what this is doing. It's taking that cue, and it is. Um, it's spinning a story that is fairly simple, but in an incredibly tense way. Uh, the, the, the suspense here is so thick you could cut it with a knife. And I've got to say, Mary J. Blige has, has created a whole new acting career for herself that is just awesome. We all knew for years she was an amazing singer, and then she started acting, and we said, wow, that's a great performance, and that's another great performance. With this, which is 180 degrees away from everything she's done before, I think she can do anything. Uh, I, she, she may be even better as an actress than she is as a singer. Well, and, and this reminds you of how so often singers, because of the interpreted skill that they have to bring to a song, how that can be transferable to acting in film and television. Body Cam starring Mary J. Blige, Malik Vital, the director, Raymond Reddle, and Nicholas McCarthy, the co-screenwriters, rated R on multiple on-demand platforms. Uh, the Japanese film Samurai Marathons, directed by Bernard Rose. Wade? Yeah, no, it's kind of weird. Bernard Rose, who's best known here for things like Candyman and Immortal Beloved, uh, went to Japan and adapted a 2014 book about an event in 1858, uh, I think it is, where uh, a feudal lord in Japan um, had a foot race, a 36-mile foot race between the samurai to prepare them to fight uh, Commodore Perry's uh, purported invasion, or what he feared was an invasion. And of course, into this you fold all the you know whoever wins is going to get a, a, a whatever they dream of, whatever their wish is. So you get a very colorful collection of uh, samurai running this race, who all have different things they want out of it, including the feudal lord's own daughter, who goes a little bit yentle to try to be able to to flee the uh, the power of her father. And then you wrap this up in a lot of uh, political intrigue inside of Japan between this feudal lord and the shogun. It's a little bit convoluted for the first half. It spends too much time kind of treading water on all the various narrative details for about 45, 50 minutes. Then the foot race starts, and then the swords come out, and the samurai <laughs> do more samurai than marathon. So it's uneven, but it ultimately sticks its landing and ends on a very strong note. Samurai Marathon, directed by Bernard Rose. It's unrated on multiple demand platforms. Uh, the Netflix romantic comedy The Wrong Missy stars David Spade, Lauren Lapkus, and Nick Swarston. Uh, Tyler Spindell is the director, Chris Pappas, and Kevin Barnett, the screenwriters. Wade? Uh, I, I, I was in shocked that I wound up really liking this as much as I did. It's a pretty straightforward uh, Adam Sandler produced movie without Adam Sandler. David Spade is a guy who uh, goes on a really bad uh, blind date and then after that meets the girl of his dreams. They're both named Missy and when he goes on a, on a corporate retreat he invites the wrong Missy. It's the crazy one, not the one that he, he was thought he was all smitten by. And the crazy one, you know, wrecks his, risks wrecking the entire retreat and his potential raise. You know where this goes. We've seen this a million times. It's been a Jim Carrey movie. It's been an Adam Sandler movie. It's been a Will Ferrell movie. Um, but uh, the fact that it's a woman who's completely out of her mind this time, that's nice. Lauren Lapkus is hilarious. David Spade is still David Spade. 
And even though I didn't laugh a lot, there is one one slapstick bit that absolutely sent me over the edge, and I nearly lost motor control and consciousness at the same time. <laughs> the wrong Missy, Christy. I can't say that it had that kind of bodily effect on me. Um, but yeah, I was vaguely amused here and there. Um, this is every bit an Adam Sandler movie. All his buddies are there. It's the usual thing where they go on vacation and they pretend that they're making a movie in the process and this is the result of it. So they're in Hawaii, at this luxurious hotel. Um, it is silly, it is gross, it is slapsticky. And then as all these movies tend to do, it makes this very abrupt 180 and wants us to feel things. Oh, we should feel things that are nice and warm and sweet now after all of the gross out jokes. Uh, and it's it's always, you know, head spinning how quickly they want us to make that shift. But, you know, if you're going to watch this kind of movie, you're going to watch this kind of movie. The Wrong Missy, starring David Spade. It's unrated streaming on Netflix. Want to take a moment to remember Jerry Stiller, uh, who was so stellar on on television comedies like Seinfeld, probably his best-known role as Frank Costanza, George's disgruntled father. Here Frank explains how he made up the holiday Festivus. Many Christmases ago, I went to buy a doll for my son. (laughs) I reached for the last one they had. But so did another man. As I rained blows upon him, I realized there had to be another way. What happened to the doll? It was destroyed. But out of that, a new holiday was born. A Festivus for the rest of us. That must have been some kind of doll. She was. And at the Festivus dinner, you gather your family around and tell them all the ways they have disappointed you over the past year. And is there a tree? No, instead there's a pole. Requires no decoration. I find tinsel distracting. Jerry Stiller, uh, father of actor Ben Stiller, of course, and so many memorable television and film roles. And with uh, his wife, Ann Mira, who predeceased him, uh, just legendary performances on The Old Ed Sullivan Show. Uh, He died, Jerry Stiller did earlier this week, of natural causes at the age of 92. It's Film Week on 89.3 KPECC. Don't go anywhere. We have much more to come in just 90 seconds. Wonderful to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle with Christy Lemire, Wade Major, and Charles Solomon. They're each going to give a pick or two uh, for things that aren't brand new necessarily, but well worth your home viewing time. And uh, let's actually uh, start with Wade. You've got a couple of films uh, in honor of the late Max von Sydow. Uh, what are the two films you think are really worth uh, seeing from, from his prime? These are both on Film Movement Plus, which is a wonderful service, and the films both won the Palm d'Or at the Cannes Film Festival for director Billy August, one of the few who has won the Palm d'Or twice. Uh, the first is Pella the Conqueror. The second is The Best Intentions. Pella the Conqueror, Max von Sydow plays a... Uh, they're both period films. He plays a father and uh, of, a, of a young son, and they're trying to... They're peasants, and they're trying to make their way in the household of a, a wealthier family. And uh, it's just a beautiful study of parenthood and, and class and, uh, and a particular period in Swedish history. 
The Best Intentions, which won the Palme d'Or in uh, 1992, is an extraordinary masterpiece written by Ingmar Bergman about the courtship, the tumultuous and very fractious courtship of his parents. And uh, Max von Sydow plays his maternal grandfather in that one. They are both absolutely wonderful films, and uh, you should at least get a trial subscription to Film Movement Plus just to see these two. All right, Wade, thanks very much. Christy, you have uh, what might be an unconventional recommendation for a film critic. Well, we contain multitudes, Larry, and I have I have many interests. <laughs> many many which, facets to Christy Lemire. Yes, yeah, so one of which is baseball. We are huge baseball fans in this house. Yeah. And, of course, you know, as so many people in L.A. are, are sad to be you know, unable to watch the Dodgers, you can watch Korean baseball. The KBO is playing in South Korea in empty stadiums, although they have kind of like cardboard cutouts behind home plate and some of the ballparks. But um, ESPN is broadcasting all of these Korean baseball organization games. They're on kind of in the middle of the night, though. They're on at like 2 a.m., 1 a.m., 2 a.m. our time. ESPN does do rebroadcasts. But it's kind of fun to, to follow along and see, you know, which team might seem tantamount to the one that you like. They all have really cool mascots, really cute, funny mascots. Korean players are known for their very artful bat flips. You know, so while it may seem disrespectful elsewhere, like it's really cool and awesome to flip your bat in the air when you hit a home run. So uh, it's a lot of fun. If you miss baseball, it can be found. The sounds, KBO. Sounds good. The KBO, Korean Baseball League. Plus, you'll get a taste of what it's like to watch games on TV with no fans in the stands. Christy, you also wanted to, to mention quickly that uh, the cinematographer Roger Deakins has a new podcast. My great hero, the legendary Roger Deakins, who has shot so many Coen Brothers films. He has two Oscars now. Um, he's got a podcast with his wife, and it's called the Team Deacons Podcast. And they began kind of broadly with getting your start in the industry, but more recent episodes have focused on very specific aspects of filmmaking, like lens choice, like lighting. And it's this really fascinating free film school. As genius and as accomplished as he is, he's an incredibly humble and generous man. And uh, it's a lot to learn. So the Team Deacons podcast. All right, wherever you get your podcasts. And Charles, you've got a couple of films that Funimation is making available. Yeah, although I so loved the cinematography in 1917, I'm going to watch that podcast. Listen to that sound podcast. Good? Yeah, now. yeah. Um, Funimation is doing something through the uh, virtual reality platform Big Screen, a series of features. Friday night. They're doing uh, Katsuhiro Otomo's Akira, which is, of course, one of the watershed films, not only in the history of animation, but of filmmaking. And with My Neighbor Totoro, it really created the mass audience for anime in America. It's dark, it's violent, it's oblique, it's fascinating, it's completely unlike the upbeat fantasies that we get from American animation studios. And also available through this is Makoto Shinkai's Your Name. That's the number one box office hit in Japanese animation history. We've talked about it before. It's an extraordinary film that begins as a body-swapping teen rom-com, but then as it develops, it becomes a meditation on the trauma that Japanese people continue to experience from the disaster that we call Fukushima in 2011 and that they refer to as the great... Uh, East Japan disaster or catastrophe. It's just such an exceptional film. And those are on uh, Funimation's own platform, Charles? 
uh, that, uh, through uh, something called Big Screen that I wasn't familiar with, but I'm sure Funima- the Funimation channel um, you know, would have the information on it, too. All right. And we remind you that uh, a number of curated personal lists of favorite movies, television programs, even as you heard from Christy, a podcast can be found at LAist.com. You can see the recommendations from our critics there. Uh, We'll continue taking a look at the latest on the state of television and film production in just a moment. Next up on Film Week, we turn our attention to the dramatic changes in both the film and television industries in this era of COVID-19 and some very significant developments. Joining us to talk about them, the host of KPCC's The Frame, John Horn, and senior editor at Deadline, which covers the business of Hollywood, Dominic Patton. Dominic and John, great to have you both with us. Uh, Let's start with uh, Scoob, the animated film releasing this week. Our critics just reviewed it earlier this hour. Warner Brothers putting it out on uh, Video On Demand. Universal, similarly, a few weeks ago, did that with Trolls World 2 and Disney this week, announcing that uh, Hamilton, the theatrical version of the uh, stage production, is also going to go out digitally on Disney+. Plus. John, is is this indicative of where studios are going to go long-term, even post-COVID-19? Uh, not if the theater owners can can help it, but yes, uh, necessity being the mother of invention. These are movies that I think audiences are eager to see, and there's no way to release them right now. And even if there's a handful of theaters open in certain states, some people have talked about drive-ins, there's no way it makes financial sense to release a movie nationally if you can't be in every city in the country. So the workaround that Universal and Warner and Disney are trying are taking these movies either straight to video on demand or to their streaming platforms. The theater owners don't really have any bargaining position. They have said they're not going to show any Universal movies going forward. Now, if you are a movie theater owner or maybe you're a stockholder in that company and they say they're not going to show the next Fast and the Furious movie, I think you got to say maybe that's penny-wise, pound-foolish. So, yes, I think this is an opportunity the studios have been looking for for a long time, and they're going to seize it, and maybe they're not going to turn back. Dominic, I would think that how Scoob performs is going to be big because Trolls World Tour uh, was such an on-demand sensation. If Scoob performs similarly, wouldn't that have a big impact? I think that there's a new reality emerging here week by week, and you see it with Trolls, and now you're going to see it with Scoob, and you're going to see how this is going to be determined on the bottom line. I think that we are not at a tipping point of same-day releases once the world gets back to normal somewhat. Theater releases are always going to have a life, but I think we're at a, a new evaluation point. And I think that new evaluation point is there are some movies that are just going to work differently going forward because there is an audience there and the audience is willing to pay and the audience wants to pay to watch at home. And the studios are now going to say, so to the theater owners. So now that everyone's back in the theaters, you want us to give up that money as well? I think so. Especially with all of the hits they've taken during this crisis, they're going to want every penny they can get. And John, just quickly with Hamilton, I realize it's, it's not, uh, it's not a movie. It's, it's, um, a filmed stage presentation of Hamilton, but why do you think they decided to put it on Disney Plus instead of hold it for theaters? Uh, I think they need content. I mean, listen, 
with production shut down by the end of the fall, probably everybody's going to run out of new stuff. And if you are trying to launch a service like Disney Plus, and you know, come October, November, you're not going to have a lot of new content. Why not put something you're sitting on until next year for a theatrical release? And who knows what the theatrical business is going to look like even a year from now. You've got something with a brand? Go ahead and put it out now. All right. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle with Deadline Senior Editor Dominic Patton and KPCC's The Frame host John Horn. Coming up, we'll take a look at what's happening to the broadcast and cable networks as they, too, are running short of content as well as advertisers. It's Film Week on KPCC. So good to have you with us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle, joined right now by John Horn of KPCC's The Frame and Dominic Patton, senior editor at Deadline. Television networks are facing a particular challenge, and that is to come up with fresh programming as they go into the summer and then later the fall. Because of COVID-19, production has been suspended. With some of the live programming, they're trying to have the shows produced at home, uh, but that, of course, has its own challenges. Uh, let's talk about some of the ways they're filling the programming. Uh, Dominic, can you, you give us some examples of where they're turning? Well, I mean, as you said, Larry, they're turning to at home. Saturday Night Live just wrapped up its 45th season with its third at home edition of this season. Um, this weekend, we're going to see uh, former President Obama do a virtual high school graduation that's going to be shown on all the networks. Um, we've seen these benefits, uh, like the One World concert and the Elton John one that was on Fox early on this. They're looking for a ton of program. And of course, because, you know, they have such a market dominance. Let's just talk about them. Disney has had their second Disney Family sing-along special, which have been incredibly highly rated. And they're getting better at this. You know, what we first saw, which kind of looked like it was kind of the little Abner gang throwing together a show, is actually becoming quite sophisticated on many levels. You have to remember, a lot of cable news is being done like this, too, with remote studios and, and green screens in people's apartments now turning into high-tech backdrops. So the, the, the content is there. But as we were discussing with Hamilton beforehand, you know, like the content, there, there's only so much content in that pipeline. And people are trying to find new ideas. Now, there are some people who are coming up with social distancing shows, like the creator of Orange is the New Black. The CBS series All Rise, which is about an L.A. Superior Court judge, actually had, as its season finale a couple weeks ago, they actually had a show that was done as if it was taking place in this reality. So it was all done by Zoom and those type of web event cameras as people were talking to each other, and a bench trial occurred. People are trying to be innovative. The problem is, as the All Rise season finale shows, you can do that once and make it look like you're being timely and clever. Over time, people, I think, are getting zoomed out. So well, and, finding content here is now grabbing content from other places. And, and uh, John, one of the things that I was seeing is that some of those um, musical talent cultivation shows that have now you know, switched to doing their auditioning process and, and their performances – at home are seeing a drop-off in viewership. It doesn't seem to have the same appeal, at least initially, as the grand, you know, studio-set productions. 
Yeah, and I think we're going to see that carried forward with sports. I mean, the Bundesliga soccer is supposed to return this weekend in Germany with no spectators. Premier League might do the same. Who knows what college football is going to be like. But I think you really touched on something, and that is even if you're watching at home, you want to be part of the crowd. You want to be part of the audience. You want to feel like you are watching with everybody else. And if you're doing something that is not live, even though it's supposed to be live, like a competition show, it feels fake. And I think that's a real problem. I think it's going to be a real problem for sports. As much as people want to see sports, will it feel the same if there's no fans, if you're playing at neutral stadiums? I think that takes away such an integral element of what it means to be a spectator, even when you're watching at home. And it's true for reality shows, and it's true for sports as well. Dominic, you were talking about other places that uh, cable and broadcast networks are turning. I saw they're looking to programs that have been streaming as, as one of the sources. Well, yeah, I mean, and some of these are pretty natural fits. You know, the CW, which had its equivalent of what would have been the upfronts uh, this just recently. And let's be honest, this is when... We all would have been, or at least I would, and maybe John, would have been like munching on, you know, expensive lobster from CBS and drinking, you know, fine wine provided by NBC Comcast at their big advertiser presentations in in New York. None of that's happening. It's all virtual. But to that end, the CW, for instance, grabbed Stargirl, which is a series that they're going to debut this weekend, which is also being shown on the DC Universe streaming system, as well as they've grabbed Swamp Thing, a show based on the the, the comic book that they uh, was on DC Universe and are now wrapped up. They're going to have at least a season of that. So those are happening. Spectrum, if you have if you're a Spectrum subscriber, have their own their own network, um, and they've had shows like LA's Finest, the cop show. That cop show is now going to show up on Fox. And there's been two seasons of it. So people are finding things that haven't had so many eyeballs and bringing them to the bigger version of the small screen in the hopes of filling these schedules because the fall has to have programming. That's where the rubber will hit the road for the networks and the studios if they have blank spots or, as John just detailed, shows that just simply are not cutting it with an audience. John, Dominic, just talking about the upfronts, and one of the things we're hearing is that advertisers who had previously made longer-term commitments are now looking at withdrawing. What sort of financial exposure are uh, the broadcast networks and cable networks looking at? About $40 billion. Whoa, TV market in any year, and a lot of that is sold in advance, and Dominic was talking about the upfronts where a lot of the advertising commitments are made. So the problem is, you know, the ratings themselves haven't been catastrophic because people are at home, but there are other issues. People aren't working. We have unemployment headed to 20%. So if you're selling a car, nobody's really buying a car. If you're selling trips, I mean, think about the things that you see on normal TV advertisements. Those things are not selling. So the advertisers have an option to get out, and that's going to kind of create a spiraling effect in terms of where money's going to come for program acquisition or program production. And I don't know where it's going to go. I mean, it's not as if anybody is really having a lot of money to spend anywhere. I mean, media buying has declined in newspapers. It's declined uh, on the radio. It's declined in magazines. And so what's happening in television is just on a much bigger scale. Although I have an idea. Yeah. It's a crazy idea where the networks can find new content that's never been seen before. How about if they take all of those episodes on Quibi that nobody's watching and stitch them together? (laughs) 
then they have a full-length show that nobody's seen. Quibi, the little uh, mini-videos, <laughs> exactly, mini-programs. Um, Dominic, I, I wonder about cord-cutting as well, because um, you would think with high unemployment, people being financially strapped, there might be more people who uh, cut cable or satellite, but at the same time, if they're home all the time, maybe that's one of the later things they cut. Well, but I think we're seeing that happening already. The numbers are going down. You're seeing it because the, th- the fact is, is there is a trade-off you have to make, isn't there, Larry? Is We're now so many weeks into this that people are, have gotten past maybe some severance or a couple of weeks they got. They might have gotten their government sur- uh, uh, surplus uh, stimulus check, but, you know, 1200 bucks is only going to go so far once you pay the rent and buy food. The 120 bucks, 140 bucks that people pay for their cable and, and what have you, they're going to go online if they've got a Netflix subscription, if they've got an Amazon Prime, and, you know, those sort of places. We are seeing a lot of advertisers actually also going online. They're going to Facebook where they're finding their captive audience. And like John said, where you're not looking for hoping out of the 4 million who are watching, 5,000 of them can afford to buy a new Mercedes-Benz. But what's going to be interesting, I think, that's coming out of this, as now as the advertisers are able to free up their commitment, the networks are also looking to them to free up. So I think... Nobody's going to go dry, so to speak. I think that what what we're hearing at Deadline is there's a lot of backroom talk happening. There's negotiation. There is old-fashioned bartering. And this isn't really new for the networks. NBC, for instance, has done this for years where they have said, look, buy some ads for the Olympics or buy some ads for the Super Bowl, and we'll throw you in some Olympic ads as well. All right. So there are going to be a lot of wheeling and dealing. Dominic, thank you so much. Senior editor at Deadline, John Horn, host of KPECC's The Frame, giving us the latest update on what's going on in the film and television business in the era of COVID-19. From all of us, have a terrific weekend. Thanks so much for joining us for Film Week on KPECC.